0: Good morning and good to see you today. This is the Sunday of Pentecost. You have heard that as we have uh, moved through the day today, the day we celebrate the spirit of Jesus being poured out on the world after his resurrection and helping us to pay, we, be with him a part of the new creation that's in Christ, in the spirit. Um, and I, I think it's interesting. Want to talk for a second about how we arrive at the scriptures we use to teach on different weeks. This week, it's sort of interesting. We use this device called the Common Lectionary, and what it does is it takes four readings a week, two from the Old Testament and two from the New Testament, and over a series of several years, all the passages in the Bible are basically covered. So if you use this device called the Lectionary, and you preach out of it every week, you would kind of take a tour through the Bible and get all of the Bible's wisdom as it covers the beauty of God's creation unsoiled, uh, the problem of sin and our fallenness, and also the possibility of the world being made new again in Christ, which is the eventual goal. That's the trajectory that we're on. And it's interesting today that the passage of scripture we use to celebrate Pentecost is kind of the negative side of things or why we needed to have the Holy Spirit come, why we needed to have Pentecost. you see, in the Old Testament, we have these rhythms. It, it starts out in the Bible, uh, Genesis 131, beautiful passage of Scripture. And God saw all that he made, and it was good. What a what a wonderful summary of God's creation, his sovereignty. He saw everything that's made, and it was good. And then in Genesis 2 and 3, uh, something goes wrong over the dinner table. And our foreparents, Adam and Eve, fall into sin by disobeying uh, God's guidelines for them—they they violate, violate that. They rebel, and as a consequence of that, God curses all of creation. And this curse is—what would you call it? Endemic. It's—it's it's a sign that everything is shattered, everything's falling apart, and—and and God actually says, "Okay, you guys get to reap the consequences." of your alienation from me. And in Genesis 3, I'm going to read a passage of scripture that leads into our, kind of doing a triple jump to our text this morning, um, that leads into uh, our text for this morning. God looks at his ruined creation. He looks at Adam and Eve and this serpent in the garden and says, because you have done this serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You're going to crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this, from everything was good, to this animosity, creatures against each other within God's creation, the animal life and human life, at odds with each other. To the woman, he says, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe, and with painful labor, you'll give birth to children. I don't know personally if this is true, but my observation is that this, this curse exists, right? And I think I could get some amens from the audience for several people who had childbirth. Uh, and and watching my own wife, who's normally very docile and calm, uh, bear two children, I, I, am, I am convinced that this curse exists. And then he says, your desire, woman, will be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. And then to Adam he said, By the way, for all the people who believe in male headship, and that gets taught around here once in a while, male headship isn't God's purpose in the Scripture. It's the curse. Next time, ladies, that your husband tells you to obey him, just say, I'm not going to live the curse, boy. Um, Okay, then to Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground... Because of you, through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. And I, in my life here, and in, in my later years in my career, I've been doing mentoring and hanging out with people one-on-one. I meet with a lot of men and women, particularly men in the marketplace doing jobs like medicine, engineering, investments, you name it. And I will testify again, just like the pain of childbirth, a lot of us really toil in our jobs. We don't always enjoy what we do, and we feel like we're fighting against time, fighting against energy, trying to have enough capacity to just get by on a daily basis. And then God says, the ground will produce thistles and thorns for you, and you'll eat the plants, you'll eat your food, until you return to the ground, since that's where you're taken from, dust, to dust you will return. And then God basically banishes everybody from this idyllic Garden of Eden, this place of perfection in the creation, and he boots them out of the Garden of Eden and places angels protecting that place of perfection from being touched by fallen human beings and the rest of creation. And mankind is left to scatter. So a beautifully put together, um, well-synchronized, well-fitting order becomes scoliotic. It it falls out of alignment and, and, and falls off in the curse. And you see, instead of unification and everything fitting together and being beautiful, you see this ugliness of alienation and separation and enmity enter into the creation and just multiply itself through the generations till Jesus comes. Well, that's how we get to today's text. And we're going to look at the strange passage in uh, Genesis 11, 1 to 13. We know it as the Tower of Babel story. And it's funny that the Tower of Babel would be our Pentecost text because this is the passage about humanity being scattered to the four winds with no ability to communicate with each other. And by the way, the play right here, um, Kim's Convenience, you've got to go see it. And I don't get paid for this. It is a fabulous show, and it speaks deeply to the alienation that exists in our society and between human beings. And it does it whimsically. It's got some outrageous uh, racial epithets in it. I mean, you just—the show is really something else. And it talks about this alienation. So in Genesis 11, 1 to 13, we see and are introduced to a new level of alienation. And I personally believe alienation is the single most profound problem in our culture today that people just can't get it together with themselves, with each other, nations, education levels, gender-blocked, generation-blocked. I mean, this alienation is just pervasive. And, and here you see God sort of nailing that down with the, another curse on humanity for its attempt to shirk God and for humanity to usurp God's role as creator, king, and lord. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And if you were to look at a map, this would be between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers where we would experience modern-day Iraq and Baghdad uh, and all that. Okay, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that when we make a name for ourselves, we won't be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't understand each other. So into this text is God's knowledge that if given the chance, humanity would take God's place. Mark, would you hand me that cup of water there? Um, sorry. You might all partake. Mm. Thank you. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they've begun to do this, nothing will stop them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they won't understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, or Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the people of the world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. So this disordered state spreads further, deeper, deeper and looks more impossible all the way along. And what we see here is a confused, scattered, and tattered creation and social fabric. And, and what we see is these widening gaps between people. You have language gaps, you have understanding gaps, you have income gaps, gender gaps, generation gaps, educational gaps, social and political gaps that are almost impossible. And I, I know just a few weeks ago, Nancy and I were on uh, an extended weekend vacation in Washington, D.C. over Memorial Day. And the, the alienation was, you know, there were protests for this, protests for the other thing, 100,000 motorcycle ridings, riding through the city uh, as a statement about veterans' rights, uh, a just, just claim they're making, but a, but a somewhat militant ride saying take care of our veterans. And all the social tensions just kind of loaded up there. And we're walking through the through the mall, and there's a din of, of noise in the National Mall, people speaking all different languages, and all these different interests expressed. And it was fairly, um, Nancy described it as cacophonous, just this annoying level of noise that didn't make sense and was really hard to cope with. And I think when we look at these ancient stories of the Scripture, They tell us a lot about how we got where we are and the mess we're in, and they set up the need for salvation. They set up the need for repair. Creation is ruined. Human lives are ruined. People cannot get along. Wives long for their husbands. Their husbands don't have time with them. Honey, I don't have time to pay attention. I'm making a living. Wives are, you know, pain in childbirth and and these different things, and they they are symbols of a tension and, a, and a falling apart of the blessed order and unity of things as they ought to be. And what we see in these stories is the inability of human beings to close the gaps that exist between them. It's a very, very troubling state. And if you read the newspaper, if you watch liberal, conservative, in the middle of the road, foreign television news services like the BBC or Reuters, it's the same picture over and over again. People at odds with various opinions that don't seem, long comes Jesus Christ. And Jesus' whole mission into the world is to take on the form of humanity as God and begin a process of reversing that curse. You heard me read the curse, and then you saw the curse applied and deepened at the Tower of Babel right? And then it just doesn't look good. It looks like total, absolute ruin with no road home. And then on a winter's night, as the story is told, God jumps into a bag of skin and bones and blood and comes to live among us as Jesus Christ. And he he models a perfect human life. He models reconciliation and understanding and order and healing and wholeness, and all the things that are lost in the fall are offered to be repaired in the new creation that's in Jesus Christ. And Pentecost is really the magnification, this suffer, the magnification of the reversal of the curse. So everything that was cursed in Genesis 3 and Genesis 11 begins to unwind and go back to a new creation in Jesus Christ. He comes to make us new. You know, if we no longer view anybody as to any of their natural capabilities, scripture says, but we view everybody is in Christ as a new creation. And we have this grand possibility because God's spirit is poured out on us to live in the reversal of the curse. To figure out how to make our marriages and friendships meaningful. To figure out how to raise kids with discipline and order, but not exasperate them. To allow for progress, but yet not willy-nilly progress that's unthoughtful and out of control. A sense for how to keep the order and conserve things that need to be conserved, like the air we breathe, the oceans we sail on and fish in, and supply so much of our food. And Jesus comes to get this new world going, and it's centered around him. And Jesus offers a new way forward because of his life, his death, his resurrection on the cross, and then his spirit being poured out on us. And when Jesus said, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to pour out my spirit, and my spirit's going to empower you to do great things. My spirit's going to give you compassion, understanding, the ability to reconcile differences that you've never known before. And we don't have to continue to live in this curse we have the opportunity to live in the new creation and this day of outpouring says a couple things to me one jesus calls us to engage our world in a new way i I can't tell you how to do this this message today isn't like here's a teaching tool on five ways how to not be alienated because i don't think that can happen but it does offer us a worldview that's different and positive and constructive and I I see it in play. I'm married to somebody that does this really, really well. I vocalize something of the curse, and my wonderful companion will come back and say to me, but maybe this, and it's always the other side of that story that's full of possibility and hope and turnarounds, and I love that. It annoys me too, Um, but I love it. And and so a couple of things here. First of all, make Jesus the big deal. Okay, go ahead and share with me what your political view is. Talk to me about your view of race and opportunity and all of those things in our world. Go ahead. Have your opinion. But also do this. Be willing to agree that Jesus is bigger and Jesus is better than any of those views and opinions that we have. We don't have to live in the little box that constitutes our sensibilities. We are set free by the gospel to live in Jesus' box, which is beautiful beautiful and wonderful, and spacious, and everybody fit, potentially. It's really cool. And we get to participate in that. So first thing I always says, we need to secure our identity in Jesus Christ. As a follower of Jesus, what makes you tick? The fact that you're a Democrat, a Socialist, a Republican, or the fact that you belong to Jesus, and you're a part of his family? and that you're willing to place him in a central spot that takes precedent over those other issues and sensibilities and worldviews and makes them stand at attention to Jesus and turn our backs on our our faithless acts of alienation, separation, and holding others at bay or setting ourselves up as better than someone else or superior in our views of society and the world. And so a couple of things I'd say here is, Own your places of alienation. I have a ton of those that I see. I want to be reconciled. I want to be friends with everybody. I want to work everything out. I don't do that. I blow it. There are people in my world that I'm not at peace with, and I hate it, and I try hard to work on that. It doesn't always work. It's a mess. But Jesus asks us to get into that mess with him and that power and stay in the game. So... Our toolbox is the Holy Spirit's resources. The personality, the eyes of Jesus, the heart of Jesus toward the world and toward the people around us. And seeing everybody as a potential new creation in Jesus Christ. Seeing every broken relationship is healable. Seeing our differences reversible. And actually, I think we have the capability to get along while embracing differences. Why don't we grow up and just do that? Okay? So one of the things I see here is, for the sake of Christ, working toward indifference on the small things and focusing on the eternal things, which are our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. 10,000 years from now, what will matter? 10,000 years from now, will it matter who's elected president of the United States? 10,000 years from now, will it matter what our country's relationship is with those countries and with Russia or China or North Korea? 10,000 years from now, what will matter is Jesus. 10,000 years from now, what will matter is the investment that you and I make in people and, and in our society. 10,000 years from now, what will matter has to do with a matrix of relationships. and full of hope and full of love 10,000 years from now all the crap that we allow to separate us to launch bullets and racial epithets at one another all those things won't matter they're dust in the wind what matters is Jesus and if we get that on now we actually get to participate with him in making all things new so what we do is move toward indifference, toward those things that aren't going to make any difference in 10,000 years. Why not be indifferent about them now? Because they aren't going to be a big deal then. And press for understanding. And the scripture has a really interesting thing, and we practice this in an organization I'm connected with called The Fellowship, runs the National Prayer Breakfast and Governor's Prayer Breakfast here in the state. And, and I work with this a good part of my week. Um, and... And one of the things that's really important there is this idea of the centrality of Christ. And they talk about agreeing in Jesus. Now, here's what's cool about agreeing in Jesus. I can have a completely different opinion about something than someone else. Mark Morlanger and I are good friends. I consider Mark and Summer family members. They were visiting me in the hospital a year or so ago, and it wasn't... I, I was trying to bleed to death, but didn't succeed. Um... And uh, they, they dropped by the hospital to visit, and the nurses were a little bothered that there was this this group of six people in my room, and I said, get out of here, they're family. You know? And and so, but even though Mark's a family member of mine, and we, we really love and respect each other, we disagree on some things, I think. And you know what agreeing in Jesus is? I completely disagree with you on that. Summer, I disagree with you on that. Nancy, I, you know I disagree with you on that. And, and... We agree that that's okay. We agree that in the eternal 10,000-year perspective, there's room for us to hold those separate views and still embrace each other. In fact, warmly embrace each other. To love each other, not in spite of our differences, but because of our differences. And see in that the mystery of creation, the mystery of reconciliation. To be willing to work hard to prepare repair relationships where there are brokenness and barriers, and not give up on that, and the opportunity to trust in Jesus to heal. So we're going to pray this morning and come to the Lord's table. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a blast of reconciliation into the world, Pentecost Sunday. So instead of languages being babbling, differences like we see in Genesis 11, the Spirit gets poured out, And simple people following Jesus were empowered to speak the gospel and tell the Jesus story in foreign languages that they had never been taught. So from this vast wasteland of alienation to the possibility of speaking a new language that you never even know was in you for the sake of Jesus. So as you come to the table this morning, think of what it means that God's Spirit is poured out on us that God's spirit is at work in you, in me, and in this world to reverse the curses and reunite us as God's children everywhere. To reunite us around Jesus, where we agree so much about Jesus that nothing else can really matter. Where we see Jesus is so full of possibility in the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead so powerful that there's no problem, no social issue, no alienation that can be left to stand. Think what that world would be like. And this morning as we come to the table, let's beg God to make us ambassadors in his kingdom, ambassadors of the new creation, ambassadors of reconciliation.